You're listening to Oh No Lit Class. Mostly dead authors. Fresh takes. Ruining required reading, one book at a time. Welcome to Oh No Lit Class, the podcast that still can't say the name of the poet E.E. E. Cummings without giggling. <laughs> Come. I'm Megan. I'm RJ. And I'm Jared. Yes. Yes, you are. But people might know you better by a different name. Stormy Daniels. Stor- what? Yep. No, 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 no. It was Dormy Staniels. People make that mistake all the time. Ah, you, you, what did you let Trump do instead of pee on you? Uh, I let him put it in the back. I let him make a deposit, you know, through the, uh, <laughs> through the night's, <laughs> what's the night slot? I'm also known as Best Day. It's Best Day! He is, uh, aka the guy who makes the song, our song, our show's song that we use. And actually, you made the theme music for a couple other shows on our network, including Play Comics and The Wallfly. I did. <laughs> that occurred. That was an event that conspired in the timeline of the universe. It's like you're a regular old music boy. Whoa. But uh, we're not going to call you Best Day. Today we're going to call you Jared. Because that's your name. And uh, I'm calling him Best Day. I mean, you can. And uh, apart from making music, the other thing that people might not know about you is that you're my brother. And I love you very much. I came to talk about H.P. Lovecraft. Ooh, brother. The great... The f- oh, brother, I came to talk about the cosmic horror. <laughs> and I'm not talking about the one I bring into the ring. Oh, I'm talking about the bad boy from Boston. I'm talking about the New England nightmare. I'm talking cosmic bio-digital jazz. Shit, that was actually pretty good. Yeah, we're talking about H.P. Lovecraft today. Uh, because what better time is there for the dark autumnal horrors of beyond than the beginning of august so i know jer that you chose hp lovecraft because you have been a fan of him since you were very small until you learned better but we'll get there he is admittedly not a required reading so to speak i definitely never had to read him gentlemen either of you (laughs) i know you you never had to read a goddamn book in your life (laughs) No, he wasn't required reading. Weird cosmic horror from the 1920s kind of skirted by the curriculum of most Florida public schools. You'd be surprised, considering most Florida public schools. So, no, H.P. Uh, Lovecraft, not required in classrooms. However, his in- massive, nigh incalculable impact on not only horror fiction, but also just media. as like Horror media as we know it, like, it cannot be denied. Hentai. Well, there's more than just the tentacles, although the tentacles are very important. So we are going to talk about H.P. Lovecraft because he Not has anti. left his betentacled mark, whether people like it or not, on classic literature. His racist betentacled mark. There's there's so much to unpack with H.P. Lovecraft, you guys. There's there's so much baggage. But uh, so before we 
kind of go more deeper into his bio. More deeper? More deeper. Before we go... Yeah, this is a literature podcast. Yeah. Grammar matters. I would... No. I guess it's not a grammar podcast. It's not, no. There's a podcast called Grammar Girl, and it's not this one. But but that's all right, because this isn't a good podcast either. No, it's not. We don't have that pressure to be good like other shows. (laughs) P. Lovecraft is the father of, as you would assume, Lovecraftian horror be kind of weird if he was the father of steve horror lovecraft lovecraft baby yeah <laughs> lovecraft baby lovecraft lovecraft baby lovecraft it's amazing he wrote that song it is we've talked about gothic horror and what that means we've talked about the kafka-esque what makes uh it makes a piece of horror lovecraftian in nature apart from the presence of squid bits. Existential dread. Yes. Existential dread of the, the deep cosmic horror of the unknown, which, depending on the context, could be driving non-Euclidean nightmare creatures that exist outside the scope of our brains. You quit, Ian. <sighs> you quit? Or... It's a kind of mathematical porno. I see where this is going. Why don't you act like an imaginary number in Mobius Strip for me? <laughs> yep, that's, uh, yeah. So Lovecraftian horror usually features misanthropic, socially isolated weirdos, which, you know, that's gonna sound familiar in a second, uh, and places intense emphasis on man's thin tethered sanity in the face of weird shit. Uh, so like you said, existential dread kind of, as opposed to overt gore or like spooky ghosts, right? Oh yeah, I mean, it's the kind of stories where people would just go mad looking at like, I don't know, eldritch bookshelves and shit like that. (laughs) I looked at the bookshelf (laughs) and my brain was seized in a miasma of that. Oh, that's the other thing. That's the other thing that's key to Lovecraftian horror. Purple prose. Dude can fucking write. But it's, it's, okay, um, have we ever defined purple prose on the show? I don't think so. Okay, purple prose is, um, Full of Prince references. Yep, it's when someone writes a story (laughs) all about how they just wanted to see you smiling in the purple rain. Uh, Chocolate rain. Nope, that's not Prince. You gotta lean away from the mic and breathe in. You lean away from the mic because you get bored. So, purple prose is uh, a term that talks that is a descriptor of like overwrought, ridiculous vocabulary and like descriptors and adjectives where it's just so unnecessary. It's like, well, I could describe this thing using two words, but I'm gonna use like twenty, and they're gonna be these huge like five dollar words, them them good antiquated SAT words to the point where you want to just throttle the person writing it listen listen megan don't blame your illiteracy on the existence of five dollars i will words. blame just my because... illiteracy on whatever the fuck i want <laughs> just because he uses some multi-syllabic prose doesn't mean you gotta freak out oh we're gonna i we, i got quotes i got quotes too i got good quotes yeah purple prose slime existential horror racism that's basically lovecraftian horror in a nutshell not a half shell no he's not a hero in a half shell but before we can tell you more about the squid-faced monster Cthulhu creatures, that gosh, that's the other thing, huh? Like, Cthulhu, like, that's a huge thing. Everybody knows what that kind of denotes. When you say Cthulhu, it's like, ah, oh, yes, squid demon. 
And the Necronomicon. And the Necronomicon. Let's not forget about that. I, I wasn't gonna. gonna I, I have notes here specifically about not forgetting about the Necronomicon. But yeah, anyway, before we can get to the Cthulhu, we gotta tell you about the Cthulhu dude. So I'm gonna turn <laughs> things over to Cthulhu. Howard Phillips, better known as HP Lovecraft, was born August 20th, 1890, and died March 15th, 1937. H.P. Lovecraft's story closely resembles that of Hewitt Packard, a.k.a. H.P. Computers. I'm using air quotes around that word, computers. It is a story of questionable quality and questionable practices from beginning to end. So strap in. So old Hufflepuff Lovecraft was born in 1890 <laughs> in Providence, uh, Rhode Island. <laughs> Did you forget where Providence was for a second? I was, no, I just... The way I read that line. Ah. That was a hard comma. <laughs> you have a hard time with your punctuation sometimes. He would end up being the only child of Winfield Scott Lovecraft and Sarah Susan Susie Phillips Lovecraft. Sarah Susan Susie Phillips Lovecraft. All right. Well, at least, like, the the, the, the kid had his own name. It wasn't nobody else's name prior to his. So he's got that going for him. Perhaps. This may wind up explaining a thing or two about old Huffy. Dadcraft was a traveling salesman. Momcraft was neurotic. She also was the daughter of a wealthy businessman named Whipple Van Buren Phillips. <laughs> One more time, please. Whipple Van Buren Phillips. Oh, that's very good. I'm sure he was never bullied as a child. Nope, not once. This may wind up explaining a thing or two about the Kraft family. You may notice there's a lot of foreshadowing in this tale. This tale is not a subtle one. Well, neither is H.P. Lovecraft, so... When Hufflepuff was three, Dadcraft was institutionalized in a hospital. It's not exactly clear as to why. What we do know is that Dadcraft had been saying and doing some strange things for some time. So the family decided it was best to keep Dadcraft in the hospital. After all, no biggie. Momcraft's family could afford it. And it's not like this would mess up old Hufflepuff for life or anything. While Dadcraft was institutionalized, Huffy and Mom moved in with Whipple, Roby, her mom, and her sisters. They lived in a glamorous estate. While there, Huffy was taught by those around and made good use of the extensive library that was present. At the age of five, the family told Huffy that Santa Claus did not exist. They just came out and said it. Now, here's the thing. Huffy didn't react to this as you might expect most five-year-olds would do. Where did you find this written down? Instead, his retort was, why is God not treated equally as a myth? Yeah. <laughs> That's real. Yeah. You also, you omitted something. When Lovecraft was three, he was already proficient in reading and writing, and he was writing letters to his uncle. What? Yeah. Did, that, that is a pretty big omission. He's fucking, he's a, he's a, he's a genius. That puts this weird five-year-old thing in context. You got a three-year-old who's just like, dearest uncle, I'm writing to you and I'm I potty trained yeah, now. Yeah, golly, syphilis <laughs> sucks, right? <laughs> <laughs> Good golly, syphilis is terrible. And what what was that thing that he said when they told him? Also, where did you see that? Like they told H.P. Lovecraft that Santa Claus didn't exist. No, that's <laughs> true. No, what he's saying is true. It's, it's true. Oh yeah, I'm not saying it's not true. I'm saying where does that live? They, they, they say, come on over <laughs> here, Hufflepuff, sit in our knee. Guess what? Santa Claus not real. And he and he said he asked, why is God not treated equally as a myth? God yeah. damn, that's a powerful response from a five year old. Yeah, what a move by a five year old. <laughs> told Santa Claus is a myth. That you tell them. You don't think the other big man in the sky is a myth, too. 
You don't think the other big man's a sky and it's a myth too? You do think the wait, other big man you, in the sky is a myth too? Wait, do you think Santa lives in the sky? <laughs> oh, Santa doesn't live anywhere. He's a myth. <laughs> the other big man in the sky. Like you think that Santa lives in the sky? Well, he does on his uh, with his reindeer and his uh, soy. I just like this tiny five-year-old voice going. Well, why do you not also challenge God, Mother? Because that's totally right, what a five-year-old sounds like. Um, I don't know what a Rhode Island accent is that he would uh, speak with. Diamond Joe, uh, Mayor Quimby. The the, the Kennedy yeah. drawl. Yeah. That's a, that's a Rhode Island thing. Ah, there you that's go. That's a whole New England thing. Well, the, you, know, you get you get ba- well. That's bat. You get Bastin. Meh. Santa's in the yard. Anyway, that five-year-old had some big dick energy, which he probably got from his dad. More on that later. Other things Huffy managed to get into, reading about Roman gods, astronomy, chemistry, and, oh yeah, human reproduction. By the time he was eight, even though no one ever sat him down to talk about the birds and the bees, only that Santa Claus didn't exist, he had figured out the whole shebang by reading about it in science books. Huffy said later in life, that learning about sex at such an early age, in such a scientific and cold manner, quote, virtually killed my interest in the subject. It also probably didn't help that his mom, who was the parent that raised him, apparently hated sex. She was referred to as a, quote, touch-me-not wife by literally everyone, including Huffy. So she was probably asexual, and they didn't have a thing for that at the time, you know, in terms of, like, being recognized. There were questions as to if her she and Dadcraft ever had sex other than the one time they created Huffy, as she never showed any physical affection to anyone. Oh, and the fact that Dadcraft never made it out of the hospital. He died there. You see, he wound up being in the hospital for five years. Turns out, he had advanced syphilis. That will make you kinda uh, lose the majority of your brain functions. Yeah, that explained the craziness, the unending illness, and why he died so young. Thing is, Momcraft never got it. Which makes sense if the two never had sex. Well, they had to have to make the baby craft unless she had him with someone else. Well, the one time. Since Dad Craft was a traveling salesman and was known to, quote, take his sexual pleasures wherever he can find them, the picture is becoming clear. Sex was really not a good thing for the family. Huffy never came to grips with any of this, arguing until his own death that Dad Craft died due to exhaustion from working too hard. The man took a five-year break from work and died from exhaustion. He was working so hard in that hospital, though. Okay, Huffle Stuff. And this brings us to this week's edition of Safe Sexin' with RJ. Uh, okay. Yeah, you know what? Fine. We've done everything else. At least it's good advice. Go ahead. Hey, Beste. Yo. You've been laying down some pipe, bumping oh, some uglies, no. got some afternoon delight, nope. partaking in the shaking of the sheets, Please stop. gave someone a green gown, had your corn ground, groped for a trout in a particular stream, right? What the hell is a green gown? Right. Hey, I've shaken my fair share of maracas. Of course you have. This is the your wor- best day. This is the worst conversation I've ever had in my life. Well, best day, did you practice? Safe lovemaking? Did you saran wrap your salami? Shrink wrap no, your schmeckle? Please. Wrap your whopper before you went and bopped her? How many of... Did you do any of those things, Best Day? I, uh, the world needs to know. 
your mother listens to this. She needs to know if you're practicing oh, God, safe sex. Oh, God, that's right. Mom listens to she every episode. She does. That's so funny. Are you practicing safe sex? You're doing this day? on purpose. I actually <laughs> use the ultimate contraceptive. Um, I, I still play Yu-Gi-Oh, so that, that that's fine. <laughs> <laughs> that, that usually works. That's more effective than any condom. Pretty much. I reactivated my RuneScape account a month ago. That 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 didn't that didn't help my chances either, right? Do you, do you at least use a Ziploc bag? I'll use what's around me. That's good to hear, Best Day, because practicing safe sex is important. Not only does it limit the amount of syphilis you might get, which really one is too many. One is far too many syphilis. Yes. It also limits how many crotch fruits you might sprout, which really. One is too many of that, too. We are not putting children on the same level as syphilis. I know. Children are way worse. Oh, geez. They drag you down for 18 years. 18 years, and you find out it wasn't even yours. Syphilis kills you. 18 years. Not no more. (laughs) She had one of your kids for 18 years, and he found out it wasn't his? Yes. We all enjoyed that that classic song from Kanye West. I wanted to say it again. (laughs) Anyway. Yeah. I know it might not feel the same. It might ruin the mood. It might make things just a little bit tougher. But damn, do you want to literally die from going crazy and frothing at the mouth? I mean, I'd prefer not to. Hell no! And that concludes this week's The Safe Sex and with RJ, brought to you by Best Day and his sweet, sweet sounds that leads to arousal of all genders, races, and ages. Before listening to Best Day and his jams, it's best to make sure you got some condoms around. What if you're too non non penist folks getting ready to bone down to best day dental damp there you go and remember kids you can't go wrong if you shield your dong or your tongue or it's all gonna be grand if you cram your damn ah. <laughs> like that. that's good that's good that's it nice. is good thank you so back to hewitt the artist formerly known as huffy after huey's dad died things took a pretty bad turn you know having been so good before that Grandma died, and the family business that paid for all this went under. Within months of the business failing and the family finances going into a freefall, Huey's grandfather died too. This forced the remaining family members to fire the family servants and forced the now 18-year-old Huey and his mom to move into a duplex of their own. Later in life, Huey referred to this time of life, basically of his mom and him having to go servantless and moving into a duplex as the darkest time of his life. Adding that at the time, duplex. he saw no point in living anymore. How could you? In a duplex. Uh, rip, without servants. Rip the American dream. Am I right? From this point forward, Huey and Momcraft took turns coming down with some sort of nervous breakdown or hysteria. Taking turns as to who was the one in the hospital at any given time. And the relationship the two shared was one of those special mother-son relationships that only special people share. Those special people being psychopaths. That's kind of harsh. Momcraft said of Huey when speaking to friends, quote, HP is so hideous that he hides from everyone and does not like to walk upon the streets where people could gaze upon him. Why is she talking about him like he's a shambling man thing? Like, it's true. He is not the best looking man. If you go look up his uh, picture on Wikipedia, he does sort of look perpetually constipated i don't think he's gonna win miss arkham anytime soon ah yeah no uh not so much he's no daniel keys with his coat of many colors (laughs) that hottie i mean he just he looks like he was born constipated i i can't really think of a better way to put that 
The French tried to point out to Momcraft this was not true, but she stuck to her assessment of the situation. It was during this time that Huey began to hit the streets and tried to make a living on his own. Now, he didn't really have much in the way of marketable skills, never having to work for himself before, but he did like writing, so he did try and latch on as an editor here and there. He also got in with the United Amateur Press Association, believing that journalism was a nice and prestigious endeavor. He used his connections to publish his first poem, Providence in 2000 AD. The poem was about a futuristic providence in which proper people of English heritage were no more. Rather, it was a providence overrun by immigrants. <gasps> yes! Yeah, or in short, it was a world with a hell of a lot more brown people in it. <gasps> brown people who didn't speak the king's English. <laughs> also, also, this is not really hyperbole. This was a big thing for Huey. As an editor, he turned down a number of works that used what he referred to as slang. He really believed that the old-style English, which really didn't even exist in England anymore at the time, was the proper way to speak, and that speaking in any other way was destroying the culture. This is not even to touch on the fact that he believed those of English descent were of superior lineage than anyone else. When World War I broke out, Huey wrote a number of letters and essays imploring America and Americans to get involved in the war effort. At the start of the war, there really was a reluctancy for America to get involved. But Huey argued that England is America's ancestral homeland and represents the best of the good old U.S. of A., which is why we fought that whole war to get away from them, I yep. guess. Yeah. Ah, oh, jeez. I can't. There's so much here happening. Eventually, of course, not likely because of Huey's letters, the U.S. did get into World War One. Ah, but you can't prove it wasn't. <laughs> they might have as for Huey's part. <laughs> as for Huey's part in the war, well, about that. He passed a physical to be enlisted and then never enlisted. In an undoubtedly courageous and heroic stance, Huey wrote to a friend that, that he did not enlist because of his mom. He said, Momcraft, quote, has threatened to go to any lengths, legal or otherwise, if I do not reveal all the ills which unfit me for the army. Yep, he blamed his mother for not enlisting. I totally go to war, you guys, but my mom says I can't. You said that last war. <laughs> if only he was like, uh, in his mid-fucking 20s. Anyway, him and mom began having nervous breakdowns again. Mom in particular was diagnosed with female hysteria and having thin blood due to menstruating every month due to having a uterus. Yep, that's that's a problem that I've got. My blood is just so thin. The doctors, they take a look and they're like, nah, you need that thick blood, son. She was also diagnosed with Oedipus Complex because, hey, it was still in the early 20th century. You want to comment on that as a psych major? Psych? No. No, 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 no. I'm not a psych, I'm a psych major. I'm not a psych major. What, what do I have? What is my, what is it? Would you like to comment on that as you have a master's degree in psychology? Right. I'm not someone mad at their white-collar parents, right? I went to graduate school. <laughs> All right. Best day. That's me. With your graduate school degree, you want to comment on the, the validity of the Oedipal Complex? Uh, you know, Freud, I think, read way too much Greek literature and did probably too much coke while he was reading it. He did do a lot of coke. So, I mean, I think it's uh, appropriate to say that Lovecraft's mother's relationship with him was strange or unusual, distant and perhaps overly affectionate and emotionally invested, 
But that doesn't mean that she secretly wanted to bang him, right? Probably not. But we'll never know. (laughs) (laughs) They don't go into that too much in his biographies. The thing, that, the thing that sucks about the female hysteria thing, apart from it not being real, is how they cured that in in the olden times. And that, they gave them O's. Yeah, they big did. O's. Yeah, the they, they gave they gave you the big O. They stuck a, a dildo up there and just kind of swirled it around and went like, "You better now." Which for a woman who's like clearly sex repulsed, probably sucked a whole whole lot. They're like, we don't get it. You know, let's just let's just fiddle with it. Let's see what happens. <laughs> It was just fiddle around in there. It worked in Fifty Shades of Grey. Momcraft died. That's after not being... what Fifty Shades of Grey is about. You've you seen all three movies. I think it has, you know, probably the the sexual enchantment of that situation, though, in terms of how sensual it is. More than likely. Momcraft died after being shuffled in and out of hospitals. Huey was thirty-one. He had been writing with friends, although he was not getting much published, and he was not very financially successful. Maybe it was the racism. Maybe it was the xenophobia. Maybe it was his attitude towards people and things. Who knows? He did have a lot of bad attitudes towards both people and things. Lucky for him, despite all this, he landed a pretty good lady as a wife, Sonia Green. Not only was she attractive, but she had some money. This certainly was of interest to old Huey, unable to provide for himself. Actually, Sonia, who had been married once before Huey, said he was actually a pretty good lover. What? How? What? She said he was a pretty good lover, but that she needed to initiate everything in the relationship. Oh, well, that makes more sense. He but, must have had a big dick. That I, I can't, like, how else is he, like, how, how else is he pulling this off? He was a go-getter. Things, but clearly he wasn't a go-getter. She had to initiate everything. Oh, once she initiated, he was a go-getter. <laughs> but all good things must come to an end. Sonia's businesses went belly up, so she lost all her money. So when Huey was between a rock and a hard place and was offered, well, paying jobs at pulp magazines... He turned them down, basically saying the jobs were below him. He said about turning the jobs down, quote, Think of the tragedy of such a move for an aged antiquarian. He really, really likes the word antiquarian. And I know this because of the stuff that I had to read for this episode. So instead, him and the wife literally starved. Like Huey had to choose on some days between eating and postage for letters to try to get his stuff published. I guess... That was just a hard, gristled, bootstrappy lifestyle for you. Yeah, you know, that's so much more noble than, you know, having a paid job at a pulp magazine. Oh, can you imagine the move for someone like him? Such an antiquarian. Not 100% sure still what that means. Eventually, the strain of everything led to Sonya and Huey getting a divorce. Well, they at least talked about getting a divorce. It was all very amicable. They agreed on everything, filled out the paperwork. The thing is... Huey never actually signed or filed the final paperwork, which he told Sonia he did. Whoops. Sonia, thinking she was divorced, got married for a third time. Only later in life, after Huey died, did she find out what happened and that Huey made an unwitting bigamist out of her. Oopsie-daisy illegal marriage. It's just like on Friends when Ross and Rachel got drunk married in Vegas and then Ross didn't annul it because he's a prick. And he told Rachel that he did, though, because he wanted them to be secret married, hoping that she would fall back in love with him. And then Ross wrote about Cthulhu. In his, like later, in his later years, which really weren't that late, he died when he was 46, Huey made a meager living by writing for other people. He was diagnosed with cancer of the small intestine, and he literally more or less starved to death. 
being in pain, not wanting to eat, not that he could really afford it anyway. And so he died March 15, 1937. A couple of things about Huey after he died. One, when he died, since he had no money, there was no headstone or anything put up for him. But there is a surety one there now, as Megan and I visited it. We stood all up on his grave. Because about 40 years after his death, fans erected one for him. And based on this story, how did he ever get any fans? Well, How, how did he ever get any fans? After he died, publishers who had refused to publish his work while he was alive, mostly because they disliked him for being just so extra, published his work <laughs> since he... <laughs> Well, he's dead now, so I guess we can do this. We don't have to fucking deal with him. They published his work since he would no longer really be able to benefit from it. And as they say, after that, it was water under the bridge. That's Like, he seems like he was kind of a bastard, and we're going to get into more about why he was a bastard later, but that's really fucked up. The end. Uh, yeah, yeah, he, yeah, he dies penniless and in obscurity. The end. Now, that, to be fair, that's... How a lot Starving of things of stomach cancer. Yay. Yeah, that happens. But yeah, that's so fucked. It's like, well, we don't have to deal with, like, Lovecraft the person now. We just, uh, now we'll publish his shit. Hey, hey. But yes, we have been at his grave. It's, uh, nice. It's, it's nice, I guess. Is it spooky? No, it's in a, actually kind of a disappointingly modern cemetery, because we've been to some cool historical cemeteries that have had, had some dead authors in them. Any fresh takes? <laughs> Only when we were there. <laughs> but yeah, no, it was, it was like people were jogging and I think we weren't actually allowed to take pictures because I remember having to sort of surreptitiously take one on my phone of, of his headstone. That sounds about right. Yeah. So obviously there's a huge pantheon here, but we're gonna be focusing on two short stories of his today that were chosen by Jared. Boom. The Call of Cthulhu and the Shadow over Innsmouth. Or Innsmouth. It's probably Innsmouth. I think it's Innsmouth. I think that's like that New England thing. Call of Cthulhu is an obvious pick because that even though the whole mythos, you know, it's called the Cthulhu mythos specifically, but he uh, only is an actual like character in the Call of Cthulhu. It doesn't really pop up much else. Only by mention or name or by proxy. And then is there a reason that you picked Shadow over Innsmouth? It's fucking good. <laughs> Lovecraft didn't think so. He didn't like Shadow Over Innsmouth or Call of Cthulhu and considered both of them to be just, like, bad works. So, regarding Cthulhu specifically, Lovecraft said he was inspired by the Alfred Lord Tennyson poem, The Kraken, which describes a big ol' squid thing sleeping for eons at the bottom of the ocean. He went through the whole, like, Tennyson pantheon and was like, where's one in here that's not gay? And that was what he found. Uh, and I guess he read that <laughs> and was like, okay, yeah, but what if it wanted to kill everything? It was also a metaphor for why racial mixing is bad. <laughs> <laughs> because if people mix, you can't tell them apart anymore, Meg. And then how do we know who's of good stock and bad? This reminds me of Dr. Soyce. Haven't done that episode yet. No, not yet. The Sneetches. Someday. The they got the stars on them. The <laughs> Well, and uh, this, is, this story is like The Sneetches. It's called Cthulhu. It was published in Weird Tales first in uh, 1928. Also, man, great fucking name for a magazine. 
You know, uh, a few episodes back, you talked about the importance of good magazine naming. I did. Can you think of anything better than... Weird tales. Weird tales. How of Lovecraft's (laughs) publishings are all in magazines with names like that. Like, freaky shit. (laughs) Unsettling thoughts. (laughs) Just, they're pretty, it's pulp. Queer happenstance. Queer happenstance. Pulp pulp is, you know, it's what you get on the cover. They, you know, there's no illusion. They know what you're selling them. Some guy is like, I, I want some weird tales, man. I need, I need to get some weird tales. Honey, I thought it was wire tales. Why wire wire tales? tales. That's a Simpsons joke. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Lisa. (laughs) <laughs> this month's issue of Wired came in. Oh no, shit, I did the joke backwards. You did the joke backwards. <laughs> 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 yeah, you did backwards. He calls it weird because it is wired. <laughs> Only the highest quality of humors on oh, no Lit Class. Oh, hello again. Oh, no, lit cl- classers, g- go classians, oh, knowers. Shit. A year and a half in and we don't have a name for our listeners. Wow. You know what? I'm going to say this is your guys' fault. You've, you've dropped the ball on this one. You g- get on that and you get back to me. You let me know. All right. In the meantime, this episode, like usual, is brought to you by our lovely, amazing, delightful patrons who, in honor of this Lovecrafty episode, I'm going to read out as though I were experiencing a a horrific Lovecraftian vision. They say that Dread Lucas lies beneath the ocean, dreaming of aeons ago, when Kiki... Amy and Florian walked the primordial surface of the earth with Sam, Jared, and Pseudobred. Yes, these were the dark days of Wendy, Tanner, and Sarah, when man gazed upon the senseless cyclopean angles of Karen. Aaron and Alexander, and could only imagine what sort of horrors might be wrought by Janet, or Not Alone Podcast at Not Alone Pod. And into the night, you would hear the keening screeches of Cheryl, Ariel at Ariel Teague, Laney, Jen, and Ben at Kness Jane. And that is to say nothing of the horrors involved in even just witnessing the sight of Brandon, Katie, Dirk Dammit at killing you guy. And quite frankly, the mind cannot handle Chris at Play Comics, Ares, or Melina. Thank you guys, and we continue to exist thanks to your support. Thumbs up! Uh, and uh, this episode's pod pals are the lovely ladies of the Unassigned Reading Podcast. They cover all of the cool, fun, and interesting books that you were unlikely to ever read in a, a classroom setting. So basically, if you listen to our show and their show, it's like reading every book ever made. Hi! 
I'm Sarah. I'm Rachel. We're sisters. And we like to talk about books. But not the kind you talk about in English class. Sci-fi, fantasy, YA. All the good stuff. You like Harry Potter? We've got you covered. Just don't tell the Ministry of Magic. We might be breaking the Statue of Secrecy. How about Frank Herbert or John Scalzi? Don't forget Octavia Butler, Lainey Taylor, Rainbow Rao, Marie Lou. Hey! Don't give all our episode ideas away. Alright, I guess you'll just have to listen to our show to find out more. Unassigned Reading. We discuss the books you are never going to talk about in English class. Let's get started. The Cthulhu, as it is called. So the first two paragraphs of The Call of Cthulhu is the very definition of extra in um, the sense of like, it is, it's, it's just, it's exactly what this specific slang term, which of course you would have hated because it was slang, was invented for. It's not even fair to call it purple prose. It's like royal, dark, magenta, fuchsia, tinged prose. It's great. The most merciful thing in the world, I think, is the inability of the human mind to correlate all of its contents. I didn't have that written down. I know that by heart. Wow, you just, that yeah, was off the dome. Yeah, it's a good opening. It's a really good opening. It's a good line. I'll give you that. It's a good line. He says the same thing again in 20 different words for the next two paragraphs, and it basically amounts to, thank goodness our sad little lumpy meat brains are unable to fathom the ever-present cosmic horrors lurking beneath the surface of the world as we know it. I'm sorry, I'm sorry it wasn't written towards our ADD generation, okay? I'm sorry that, you know, fucking almost a hundred years ago, life was a little slower when it came to describing fictional creatures that don't exist. But he's not even describing fictional... No, we're going to get to how he describes fictional creatures. I have different opinions on That's that. That's good. But, like, you you don't need to spend two paragraphs saying, like, it's a good thing that we don't understand everything or we'd just be shitting our pants with terror all the time. I guess so. He's all like, oh, you know, we don't know about the dozens of surreal vistas of the bottomless mines. It just goes on and on. <laughs> exact. Thank you. Thank you. So... These are, the, these things that we're describing are the thoughts of our narrator, one Francis Wayland Thurston, which sounds like the bad guy in, like, a Resident Evil or Silent Hill game. I think that's fair. Oh, what? What? Francis so- Wayland Thurston. He sounds like the sheriff from the Duke of Hazzard. <laughs> Wayland Thurston! <laughs> sheriff Thurston! Come on. See, but it's not, oh, it's Francis Wayland Thurston. You're telling me that doesn't sound like someone who works for the Umbrella Corporation. That does, though. So. So. I hope you like narrative framing devices, because we put a narrative framing device in your narrative framing device, so you get your narrative framed by narrative framing. I'm Exhibit. We've had a good run of classic old-timey memes lately on the show, which um, I guess is just us showing our age. Yeah, I guess it is good the human mind can't correlate all of its contents, because then I have to <laughs> deal with you doing the fucking Exhibit meme. So, the initial outer frame is, quote, someone... Discovering the papers of the late Mr. Wayland Thurston, which detail him discovering the papers of his granduncle, the late George Gamble Angle, because everybody gets three names, a professor who had died suddenly after, and I quote, being jostled by a nautical-looking negro. What the fuck? <laughs> nautical-looking negro? Yes. Now, f- first, first, you can add, you can add Professor, uh, Angle, Angle, Angel, how would you do this? Angel, like the Lord's tongue. Yes, you can add Professor Angel to the list of old men who have been gently pushed to death in fiction. 
<laughs> yeah, you know what? I'm just gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna call an audible. And when I read that, like I didn't know if that meant he was pushed overboard or he's in some sort of like academic nervous collapse and then was just shaken and died. I, I really just it doesn't make any sense. No, like he was just he was jostled. And then secondly, a nautical looking Negro. Like let let's for a moment put aside the uncomfortably antiquated racist terminology and just be like, w- wouldn't that just be a sailor? Couldn't he just call him a sailor? It's Lovecraft, though. Why use one word when you can use, like, five instead? He's just so nautical looking. Like, did he have a triton? Was he cosplaying as Aquaman? It just, it helps you step into the narrator's point of view, and the narrator is confused by sailors and is probably a racist. He just sees these dudes dressed up to go to sea, and it's like, oh, they're just so nautical looking. What could their purpose possibly be? What the fuck is on the coroner's report? Jostled. Cause of death is jostled. He's jostled by a nautical looking (laughs) Negro. Like, I don't know what you want me to say. (laughs) The coroner's just like, clearly this man was jostled to death. HP, OHP had a, a strong affinity for people discovering things. He liked Gnosticism, right? He liked hidden, you know, pagan knowledge. He it was he had a particular obsession with Theosophism, which is um, some kind of large religious movement that happened in the early 1900s with kind of a backpedaling focus on the mystic and the occult. And so people are always just discovering shit. And it's like, oh, <laughs> oh, oh. yeah, yeah, this was by Professor Angel's Xbox. This is his collection about a god that's coming to Earth to end it. This <laughs> is just, yeah. Uh, and he bequeaths to you the old, uh, his collection of... Pogs. Uh, yeah, Pogs <laughs> is Blu-ray set of the complete Naruto series, and this box of stuff about an evil god that's going to end the world. Yeah, with a clay statue <laughs> of a demon. <laughs> He's just been hanging yep. on. <laughs> so, yes, uh, Thurston pours over his grandfather's writings and relays three separate tales of cthulhu Enus, beginning with the professor being approached by a young art student named Henry Anthony Wilcox, because, again... Everybody gets three names in Lovecraft Land. Everybody gets three names. Everybody has three names. <laughs> anyway, Wilcox comes to, to Angel like, Sup, Professor, check out this fucked up bas-relief I made of, like, monsters with squid faces and shit that I saw in a dream. Wild, right? And also, for, for anyone who doesn't know, like me, who, who had to look it up, uh, a bas-relief is a, a kind of sculpture that's, like, carved into a tablet. So it's like a flat surface, but the the details are sort of three three Ding off of it. Does that make sense? Yeah, a lot of old a lot of old Roman art are, are bas reliefs. Egyptian artists too. And it's great because people all around the world are just kind of having nightmares, and it talks about the professor kind of just going around being like, "Hey, have you had any nightmares about people with squid heads or you know something like that?" And he slowly starts to figure out that around this time, a lot of people and the time period specifically March first, nineteen twenty-five to April second, nineteen twenty-five. March twenty-third. March twenty-third. Thank you. Well, that's when that's when Wilcox enters his delirium. But then he does the research. <laughs> And yes. he's like, which is funny. Can you just imagine he's just cold calling people? Hey, you have any weird <laughs> dreams lately? You're like, you're dreaming about squid people or something. Hi, I'm Dr. Angela. I'm just calling you up to ask you, uh, are you the man of the house? Would you like a subscription to, uh, weird to tales. books? You've been, yeah, you've been dreaming about weird squid shit. But yeah, Wilcox is like, yeah, I, I did. 
and there was these winged squid face monster things, and they kept saying stuff like Cthulhu and Rila, Rila, Reba, Ricola, Reba McIntyre. And I was like, hey, like, how do you guys spell that? Huh? Apostrophe T? Yeah, that seems needlessly complicated, but. All right. Like, how does he relate that? That he's like, yeah, they, they were saying, because it, it says in the story that Wilcox says they were saying things like Cthulhu and Riala, and it's like, yeah, Ooh, with the apostrophes I and got everything? This. I got okay. this. This is one of the All quotes right. I specifically saved. No, no, no. He wasn't just shouting gibberish. Uh, this is how Lovecraft it again. You may find it wordy or, you know, with the pink prose or whatever you called it, but this is great. He described Cthulhu with... A subterrain, so S-U-B-T-E-R-R-E-N-E. I don't even know if that's how you're supposed to say it. Oh, yeah, that was the other thing. Uh, on, on, on top of antiquated words, he loved spelling things wrong with, with the argument that, well, this is how they spelled it in England 200 fucking years ago. Were F's or S's? Just big, just blah. <laughs> but however, in his defense, it does give it that quality of, like, you're discovering it now, too. You know, just like Angel. Anyway. He says with a subterranean voice, shouting monotonously in enigmatical sense impacts, uninscribable save as gibberish. How do you chant something both monotonously and enigmatically? Sense impacts. Isn't that just great? <laughs> to me, that's what I love about Lovecraft. You just, you get lost in just trying to think about, you know, what would that feel like? Imagine something so horrific that it's not even speaking. It's just impressions upon the very tools you use to make sense of the world. That's why I find it fascinating. But we spell it with a C-T-H-U-L-U. In the air. <laughs> oh, oh, also, you also neglected another one of my favorite quotes. Well, yeah. just because it sounds funny. That the artist, old Anth Henry Anthony Wilcox, when he started having the dreams, is a good quote, he called himself psychically hypersensitive, but they called him queer. <laughs> <laughs> Queer. All right, quote, quote number three in, in Jared's late night top three quotes from like the first five pages of The Call of Cthulhu. Cthulhu is described as a form which only a diseased fancy could conceive. What in the fuck is it? Your fancy's quite it's, diseased. Your fancy's so diseased. Also, that's lazy. Like, for all that he over-descripts everywhere else, like, that's fucking lazy. Well, what does he look like? I don't know, only a diseased fancy could imagine. You figure it out, fucker. <laughs> well, because it's not Lovecraft saying it, it's just the, it's, you know, it's the guy finding the shit about his, uh, dear old, uh, uncle or whatever. So, Wilcox enters his fever and his delirium, and then we have the period uh, from March 23rd to April 2nd, during which the professor uh, puts together all of these bizarre incidents around the world, including, like, cultists yelling about the end times, riots in the streets, dogs and cats living together, mass hysteria. Voodoo orgies, you forgot the best one? Like, he just I knows. did, I forgot the voodoo, yeah, I, I sense a voodoo orgy. He mentions it in, like, a funny, stupid, old-timey 1900 way that, you know, the guy's nephew, right? Is that the relationship? Yeah, yeah, Thurston is, it, it, the guy's, the professor is his great-uncle. Great-grunkle, okay. His grunkle. His, his grunkle, grunkle Angela. <laughs> he makes a statement kind of to the effect that, like, golly, like, Grunkle must have had a lot of fucking people in a lot of, like, different countries keeping tabs on a lot of weird shit. 
It's true. Voodoo orgies. On the rise, too. Like, how, what's what's the regular level? <laughs> and then Wilcox just snaps out of it. And everything just stops. Everything kind of relaxes. He, he no longer has any wild dreams. All squid deity-related activity just stops. And Grunkle Professor's just like, well, that was fucking weird. And Thurston, reading Grunkle Professor's letters, is just like, well, that was fucking weird. And, uh, and we, and we move on to the second story about a detective in New Orleans named Inspector Legrasse. Inspector John Raymond Legrasse. Oh yeah, that's true. Everybody gets three names. Is it Legras? Is that like a fucking Cajun thing? I, I was not sure if it was a Cajun thing or not, if it would be Legras. We got two S's and then an E after it and French is dumb. Wow. And it's like, it's in New Orleans. So I feel like he's like, ah, Cajuns. Uh, yeah, he's got a real high opinion of any place that's not New England. <laughs> yeah, once he describes what, what old inspector inspected in, in, in New Orleans, which I imagine H.P. Lovecraft potentially never visited. Probably not. Don't fact check us. This story with the, with the inspector actually takes place a full 20 years before Wilcox's hentai art project. And involves Inspector Legrasse meeting, or Legrasse, meeting with Grunkle Professor and a group of other professors in, of, like, old-timey weird shit. That for that another their, story their within a story. Study. <laughs> yes, for yet another story! We're going in another fucking layer deeper! As he relates to the old-timey professors, as is being recalled by Grunkle Professor, as is being read by Thurston, as is being read by our our person of no note who's discovered Thurston's letter, shoot me in the face. What person is this story in? Because I'm confused. <laughs> I don't know. The inspector, he uh, he calls all of these uh, professors who are, are masters in the field of old-timey weird shit and is like, look at this statue I found on a, a raid of a quote-unquote supposed voodoo meeting out in the swamp. I don't know if you guys want to tackle that, the supposed voodoo swamp meeting. The KKK. <laughs> There's fires, there's hoods, you might mistake him for, you know, ghosts. <laughs> Talking in tongues. Yeah. Barely intelligible. It's like voodoo. Kind it's, of... it's what happens in Nolans, you know? Nolans. All, all voodoo all the time with their undoey. <laughs> it's crazy. <laughs> all right, it's voodoo, voodoo meeting. So he shows them the statue, the statuette, because it's, it's actually quite small. It's made of a strange greenish black stone and depicts a winged squid-faced Cthulhu monster. And this is, I love this, I... Quoted this directly, squatting evilly on a pedestal, which of course begs the delightfully upsetting question: How exactly does one squat evilly? Your feet are forward, yeah, but your knees are bowed out. Ah, you perch. It's a perch, more so. It's than a perch. A squat. It's just like you're about to do a number two. Ah, you're about to pop a squat. Gotcha. I personally pictured like someone doing squats at the gym while like scowling at me and maintaining like an uncomfortable amount of eye contact. Just like. Although, actually, which would be more potentially like evil? Glaring intensely at a stranger while squatting or smiling in like a malicious sort of devilish manner? Like, yeah, I'm doing squats. Watch me go. 
This reminds me of something that happened at the gym today. Well, let me hear it. Right here. <laughs> I went to the gym. Um, some guy was doing squats. Was he and, squatting evilly? And there was another man at the other end of the gym who did not like how this man was squatting. And so he was like making like hand signals at the guy, like how to like <laughs> fix the squat. And the man squatting was not understanding these hand signals. <laughs> and so the other guy walked all the way across the gym to like demonstrate how this man was squatting incorrectly. And they got into some heated discussion. And the the squatter shoot away the man trying to correct him. It's a good story. Yeah. What wasn't having it. These two jack guys. They were yoked. He was squatting evilly. Yep. Incorrectly. <laughs> oh my gosh. Just these are the questions that tug at my thin tether to sanity, anyway. Legrasse describes taking on the case of, like, these missing women and children and discovering them being tortured at the hands of, like, 50-some-odd assorted cultists of, <laughs> quote... Very low, mixed-blooded, and mentally aberrant type. Right? Inspector Legrasse is like, look, I'm racist too! <laughs> We're all racist, it's okay! <laughs> Just me and these dirty mulattoes out here in Nolens. Like, why didn't any of the scientists that, be like, yeah, that's... Like, how is that relevant? He's like explaining this to a bunch of archaeologists, and they're like, this guy's a fucking racist. He's just coming and yelling That'd about- That'd be great. <laughs> the professor's <laughs> just like, dude, what, why, why do we need a, it doesn't, does it matter? They were of low blood! <laughs> can, can you tell us more about the statuette? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, I, it's, it's confusing. Uh, he said that the cultists told him that they worshipped the old gods, and, uh, said the- Oh boy. Pinkluit Magunafa Cthulhu Roller Wagana Go Fritzagen. Let me try this bad boy right here. Oh yeah, go go to town. Where am I looking? Right after Old Gods. Oh, Pazuzu. That's not Pazuzu. You gotta touch with the Pazuzu. <laughs> Pignui, Magnaf, Cthulhu, Riley, Waganau, Fican. <laughs> You gotta trans. Easy. You gotta translate it though. It's a classic line. You got a touch <laughs> of the Cthulhu. I just did. He ask the cultist to spell it. Like was he writing down in his notebook? Like okay, yeah, Wag- Waganaga. Where's the G go in there? Is now, it, is is that it car keys or cat keys? <laughs> is it is it phonetic? Are you sure they were chanting and not just having like a seizure or like intensely clearing their throats or like? Maybe they just eaten a lot of peanut butter, and they're like, "Ah, oh, the old guys." <laughs> anyway, they tell the grass that Cthulhu is sleeping in his dark house in the evil city of R- Rilla. Rila, you, you got any insight on that one? Rila, Rila, Rila. I don't know. It's it's fine. It's it's. Reba McIntyre under the water, and then eventually he's gonna wake up and murder the world as one does. One of the cultists refers to the Necronomicon, which after like binging Ash vs. Evil Dead for like two solid weeks, I can't take seriously as a word anymore. And it also makes me wish for a movie and or show in which Bruce Campbell battles Cthulhu, like directly. And I still haven't seen season three, so like no spoilers if that becomes the case, because that would be rad as fuck. (laughs) That would be. It would be. Bruce Campbell fighting Cthulhu would be objectively great. But anyway, they quote the Necronomicon as saying, That is not dead which can eternal lie, and with strange aeons even death may die. May die. You gotta help me out with the oohs. It's a good Ooh. quote. And the professor uh, hears the story, and he looks at the statue, and he goes, Well, that's fucking weird. And Thurston reads the story and goes, 
Well, that's fucking weird. And the beat goes on! <laughs> so our, th- our third story within the story is kind of where, where, where things actually happen. And it involves Thurston moving forward now with his own research on Cthulhu. And he discovers an article in an Australian newspaper about a shipwreck from which there was only one survivor. A Norwegian dude who unfortunately only gets two names. He's not special because he's a dirty Nord- Nordic man, I guess. I don't know. Named Gustav Johansson. So, Johansson describes his ship getting attacked by another ship, crewed by an evil-looking crew of mixed-race dudes, because of course it was! <laughs> An evil band of mixed-race... Watch out, sir! Pirates! Can you tell where they're descended from? I don't know, they look like they might be a mix of several races. Oh, no! It's even worse than I feared. We we gave these Norwegian men (laughs) British accents. It seems apropos. (laughs) It does. Anyway, here's the deal. Here's the deal. Because here's the the 411, (laughs) okay, on Johansson, all right? Because the story totally switches, goes full action movie in a little bit. It does. It's true. It will. So, Johansson and his shipmates lose their own ship, but they're able to kill all of their attackers, all of their dirty mixed-race attackers, and take the ship and end up sailing to an uncharted island where nearly everyone else dies but Johansson. Because, you know, reasons. So Thurston decides that uh, these mysterious deaths are not, as one might think, Johansson going Donner Party on his crewmates, but are instead of a more Cthulhu-related cause, and so he travels to Australia, where he finds a statuette rescued from the wrecked ship that's the same as the one that the inspector found in New Orleans, and then travels to Oslo to talk to Johansson, only to discover that he too has suffered a tragic death by sailor pushing. He just says, like, an altercation with a sailor from somewhere. Like, some some place. Billy Bud? Maybe Billy Bud. So Again, he get, he are, gets... are they just so frail? Or, or are they drowning? It's confusing how they actually die. They just... It sounds very Victorian. Like, they, they just get touched and it's like, oh! Yeah, exactly. Or, like, Mick in Ro- Rocky Three, right? It's Rocky Three. Yes. Yeah, like Mick in Rocky Three, where Mr. T just pushes him and he dies. Same, same, same basic thing. I haven't seen that. Rock, rock, <laughs> We've mentioned it on this on this show before, so people are probably gonna get tired of hearing it. But it's not a joke. Mister T gets mad and he pushes Mick to the ground, and it's just like a shove. Like he just pushes him, like, and it's just like a normal shove, and then he dies like two scenes. Oh, there later. it is. Rocky three. Mick has a heart attack. Now, they don't. They don't say it's a heart attack. They you never say die. that. He just sort of dies. I, and I, it is, I gotta kind of watch is, it. I'm watching it without audio. Just so you it know, is just meant so to be assumed that he is shoved to death by Mr. T. Hey, he doesn't even fall on the ground. He just gets shoved, kind of yeah, into the stairs. Uh, yeah, he just gets kind of shoved. Like oh, Meredith oh, no, Bridges no, can't be doing <laughs> his so own stunts. Then he's just dying. That's that's a little. And, and you, I told you I wasn't making this shit up. It's a little extreme. Well, that's what I think of when I hear about uh, the professor, Professor Grunkle, being jostled to death by a nautical negro. <laughs> I think I'll start doing that too. So yeah, Johansson gets jostled to death, but so, he's but but but, but 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 all is not lost because Johansson's widow just so happens to have something to unravel the mystery of Cthulhu. Another one of H.P. Lovecraft's framing devices. A manuscript <laughs> written by Johansson for Thurston to then read inside the story. We're going another layer deeper. 
But yeah, it's it's conveniently in English also, despite him being, you know, Norwegian. So this details the, the island as a, a weird, gooey place full of land that's, and I have so many great quotes here. Like 90% of this is just me going to be directly quoting the thing. Abnormal, non-Euclidean, and loathsomely redolent of spheres and dimensions apart from ours. Which, yeah, that's how a normal sailor man talks. Those are words he uses. I mean, I don't know about you guys, but like... If you've ever spent any time aboard a ship or even just, like, down at the docks or a wharf or some shit, surely you've heard sailors constantly complaining about loathsomely redolent spheres. <laughs> how, loathsomely, <laughs> how loathsomely redolent do your spheres feel today? <laughs> Fucking spheres. So have I? <laughs> loathsomely redolent. I have. Indeed. By the way, redolent means reminiscent of something, which, like, fuck me, what a useless word. He describes all the architecture as cyclopean. It's his favorite way to describe things. What does that mean? Like, it all has one eye? You know, when I was growing up, I really thought it was something like that. Or like he was talking about, like, the ancient race of Cyclops. Turns out, I am wrong. (laughs) Cyclopean architecture actually is just kind of, uh... It's a kind of ancient masonry where stones were just kind of piled on top of each other. It kind of has that really good, old, scary vibe to it. But if you Google Cyclopean, you'll see a bunch of walls made out of kind of mismatched bricks that are symmetrical, but not necessarily aesthetically pleasing. So it's just kind of like, yeah, we got these bricks and we're just going to do whatever we can with them. And he just turns that into like, loathsomely redolent, non-Euclidean. It's, it's, a, like, it's a good description. Because once I realized what Cyclopean actually meant, I was like, whoa, those that arrangement of bricks is a little unsettling. <laughs> There's something about that arrangement of bricks that don't stack up. It fills me with cosmic <laughs> dread. So as the sailors struggle to take in all the slimy, spherical landscapes, the sa- they, they also somehow accidentally open a portal into the horrifying unknown. <laughs> Oops. Like, Lovecraft specifically points out that the original cultists, like, they just couldn't do it. They couldn't figure it out. Bunch of confused and scared sailor dudes pop that portal to hell right open. Easy peasy. Whoops. Whoops. And then Cthulhu pops out, and like I'm just gonna do more direct quoting right now because I, I have to. But first, to to sort of set the scene here, our boy comes out of the portal. We know he's been sleeping for for eons, like the cultist said. So he's just woken up. He's probably not quite with it. He's got like that sleep inertia. And Lovecraft writes, it lumbered slobberingly into sight and gropingly squeezed its gelatinous green immensity through the black doorway. So fucking good. So great. <laughs> there's there's just there's no you have to say it in that voice. You can't say that in like a normal pr- it lumbered slobberingly into sight. <laughs> there it comes, like guy uh, lumbering along again. I don't know which I like more here. Lumbered slobberingly. Which is great, because it's just like... (laughs) Or gropingly squeezed its gelatinous green immensity. He's he's just a big, gooey jello boy. Cthulhu's feeling himself, like a lot of upbeat, positive songs. (laughs) He's a strong, independent, unspeakable horror. It's it's a strong, unspeakable horror. You just gendered Cthulhu. Yikes. You guys have been doing it this whole time. We have, yeah. Well, And you're never told if Cthulhu even has a gender. Not only did you assume Cthulhu has a gender, you've assigned a gender to Cthulhu. I'm going to keep calling him a Jello boy 
boy. Uh, yeah, I know. You, you can't <laughs> help it. It's B-O-I, though. He's just <laughs> sleepily groping around. Then he's sir. He's still got some drool going on. Like, cut, cut him some fucking snacks. He's trying to hit snooze, you know? He's still Yeah! What the sailors do instead is they run back for the ship, and they're freaking the fuck out, which, you know, fair. And uh, Kafu follows them, and Lovecraft says that he, specifically, he was hesitantly getting into the water. He's nervous. The ocean, the, the, the ocean is big and scary. And what does Johansson do? So, Johansson fucking is like, I've got a great idea. I'm turning into Bruce Willis. And so he rams the ship into Cthulhu. He's like, I got a good idea. <laughs> I got a great plan. I'm going to steer the ship into Cthulhu. You guys are down with this, right? You're on board. <laughs> oh, wait, you're literally on board. You have no choice. <laughs> wink, wink. So yeah, Johansson and like, the, it's always so interesting because I can probably name the stories written by H.P. Lovecraft that have, quote, action in them on one hand, okay? There's one that we're probably not going to talk about called The Dunwich Horror, which is a little longer, so I, I didn't select it due to Megan's attention span. But in it is a Ghostbusters-esque finale where three wacky dudes, each from different occupations, you know, you got the scientist, you got the inventor, you got the investigator, right? They all get together. All good white men of English stock, though, I assume. Yeah, yeah unfortunately. But they get together to fight Yog sothoth and prevent him from coming into our realm. It's pretty fucking great. And I mean, to be fair, Ghostbusters was actually heavily inspired by Lovecraft, so... Oh, was it? Was it? Yes, it was. So yes, uh, like you said, Johansson rams his boat into Cthulhu's head, and he does it so hard that his squishy, jello-ass squid face explodes. This kind of causes a little internal, you know, dichotomous thinking, right? Like, these old gods are coming to, like, murder us. They're cosmic, untouchable beings. Johansson is like, I'll just hit him with this ship. I mean, eh, it's gotta work. And it does! <laughs> I'm just gonna explode his head with my boat. And it, and it does. So, I mean, yeah, kind of, it's like, really? Are the old gods all that bad? Also, <laughs> I, I, I admit that shit went everywhere, too. And that it was, like, nasty as hell. And it was probably like in Ghostbusters when he gets slimed. Or like uh, like when you go on uh, Nickelodeon. Do they do that anymore? Do they still slime people on Nickelodeon? No. No, it's, oh. it's, it's not PC these days. <laughs> I don't even know what that means. I don't know either. <laughs> yeah, really. So Thurston marvels over this bonkers story and is just like, that fucker's still down there, regrowing his head or whatever, and now I know too much, and will probably also be roughly jostled to death by sailors. <laughs> Which I guess is the assumption, since he's dead. The, the end. end. Boom! Rap song! <laughs> oh, I was gonna say, bring it in for a... That was a very... What was that? Ooh. 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 Oh. 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 Yo, this <laughs> is a story all about how I knew some shit with the old... Ah, oh, I don't know. I don't know where I'm going with that. Oh, come That's on. You must be like, syllables. the old gods were coming round, and Johansson came to put them down. Thurston is the research man. He's finding <laughs> weird shit all over the land. Put the boat in Cthulhu's face. Put that slime all over the place. God, you're so bad at rapping. <laughs> I love it so much, though. 
Inspector Legrasse, he's a racist. I wouldn't hire him to handle my cases. <laughs> Go. Small bar relieves. <laughs> I don't know where I'm going with that one. Weird bar relieves. I got them right here. They say I'm psychically sensitive or maybe just queer. <laughs> So yeah, Call of Cthulhu ends with a rap song, you know, like any good uh, piece of media. Yep, and that's where it all comes from. That is the origination of America's most beloved squid demon and the only story in which he factors into as a major character. America's favorite monster. <laughs> so our next our next tale of terror. This episode is going to be forever long. <laughs> yeah, so it turned out that RJ was in fact right about that. And after going through and editing, I didn't want to cut the whole, you know, second story. So you'll be getting that in part two, which will be out on August 16th. Probably a little earlier for our Patreon supporters. And of course, on the week off in between the two, there will be a study break bonus episode also up on our Patreon. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this deep dive into that jelloey Cthulhu goodness, then consider subscribing to us on iTunes, leaving us a rating and a review because we're good. Get on that gosh dang top 200 literature list. If it's the last thing we do, you could follow us on Twitter at Ono Pod. You can like us on Facebook and come hang out in the Facebook group, fling some memes around. You can visit our Patreon at patreon.com slash Ono You can scream into the wind as hard as you can it really has nothing to do with this show but you know that's just it's healthy it's just a good thing to kind of get out of your system every now and again oh oh yeah right one last thing so i know there's a pretty big overlap in people who listen to us and people who listen to my brother and my brother and me because we put the ad on the thing so for any florida my brother my brother and me fans who also listen to us, we will be at their live show in Orlando on August 31st. Not in any cool capacity, we're just going to, to, to go see it, because we like them, and it's neat. But we'll be there, and maybe we'll run into each other. I'll have my Big Willie Shakespeare shirt on, probably a, a big, dumb Ono Lit class hat that I'm going to make, and if you see me, you just be like, oh, ah, it's you, and I'll go, ah, it's me, and you won't see RJ, because RJ will only allow himself to be seen if he wants to. He has that power. Let us know on Twitter or Facebook if you're a Florida fan of both us and my brother and brother and me and you're going to be at the show. So that'd be cool. Yay. Until then, I'm Megan. I'm RJ and I smell bad. You do. You smell so bad. We love you. Bye. Who are you? Who are you? Who are you? This podcast is brought to you in part by the Brain Trust Brothers Network. For more information about this podcast or others, visit braintrustbros.com.